Welcome to the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. Well, Mike, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you today, two things, but the first one is this Cardi B debacle that we've been hearing. But I was wondering if you can kind of just shape out the story for us, Mike. Well, here's what went down and here's what's interesting about it to me. And I'm going to read something as well from a, an NBC article about it. But we live in a culture, uh, what I call the post-TMZ culture, where uh, entertainment journalism, gossip journalism, you know, that's preferred. That's how you get traffic, saying trashy things, saying any trash or dirt gossip gotcha moments. You know, somebody's not wearing makeup, somebody's breaking up with somebody, somebody punched somebody. Anything that you can get, any garbage, any trash you can get on somebody's cells, it gets you clicks. And how do you make money nowadays if you are a YouTuber or a blogger? It's about traffic. How do you attract traffic? What is clickbait? Well, celebrity trash talk is the ultimate clickbait. And this blogger, her name is Tasha K. Tasha K. And her real name is Latasha Kebby. I've had it happen to me where somebody decides they're going to spread lies about you. They're going to spread wait, wait, lies about you. this happened to you? Dude. Listen, yes. <laughs> oh my God, I hear this. Dude, you have no idea. This, we could do a whole podcast on it, but let's just say if somebody decides whether they believe it or not, okay? And in this case, and this is what's important here, because uh, I'll get to her belief and whether she knew the content was fake, but if somebody decides to spread lies about you, what can you do? A libel suit is one of the most expensive suits you could possibly mount. It takes years, it takes hundreds of thousands of dollars. That part of that 4.1 million that she won is 1.3 million just in legal fees. So that's something not everybody can do. So if somebody comes out and says all kinds of crap about you, what are you gonna do about it? What can you do about it? And if it's, and here's the biggest insult to it, if somebody can spread lies about you and then get paid. This is the culture we live in. So here's what I thought was important. From the article, it says, in court, Kebby acknowledged that some of her content is fake and that she knew some of the rumors she helped circulate were untrue. You said that uh, uh, Cardi B prostituted? Yes. She uh, was uh, a drug user? Yes. Cocaine and Molly, to be specific? Yes. Okay. She has herpes? Yes. Although she presented them as facts and even referred to herself as a journalist on her channel, but she admitted that she's not a journalist and that her primary objective is to entertain her viewers and to increase traffic and viewer engagement through the comments. You know, it reminds me of that movie, The Sweet Smell of Success. I'm sure you saw it. Tony Curtis, Burt Lancaster, 
Twitter, and it was about a gossip columnist and how he used to go to the 21 restaurant, right? Sit with his phone. They used to bring him the phone. Uh, Mr. J.J. Hunsicker, um, yes, a phone call for you, sir. That's the only reason the poor slobs pay you, to see their names in my column all over the world. Now I make it out you're doing me a favor? I didn't say The day I can't get along without a press agent's handouts, I'll close up shop and move to Alaska lock, stock, and barrel. You have this monster who is a gossip columnist. But that's how much power they had. You know, and it's uh, it's funny that this shit's been happening for over 100 well, years. here's the thing. People don't know the difference between journalism and editorialism, opinions... And bullshit. I think that if you're going to go ahead and make sure that you're doing entertainment journalism, that it doesn't detour or diverge into gossip. Gossip is delicious. It's easy. It's quick. It comes to you. It's effortless. Entertainment journalism, you have to apply a framework of these laws that aren't really laws, you know, because because journalism is is unregulated. It's it's not regulated by the government. And so we have a constitution, right? Here are the laws of journalism. Here's what we do. We abide by the truth, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea with journalism is just to report the facts but maybe even with some solutions journalism of today, you know, report the facts what the problem is and offer a solution. Give your points of views, but in an intellectual way, something that has been backed up by sources, et cetera, et cetera. Not making lies up and then passing it off as truth for entertainment and freedom of speech and then hanging on to that hat. There is a whole sub-genre of quote unquote journalism or blogging or YouTuberism or whatever you want to call entertainment content creation where people get drunk and talk shit. Some people get drunk and cook. Some people get uh, drunk and, and, and talk about the politics of the day. And, you know, OK, it's keeping it easy and all that. That's a whole concept. Part of what sank this woman was her profanity laced. Uh, uh, you know, the tirades themselves were not very complimentary uh, to someone who calls themselves a journalist. OK, there was a time when the gossip journalist really could hold your career in their hand, whether they revealed something they found out or not. You know, it's been the plot in movies about old Hollywood. Those gossip journalists had a lot of power on your public image, your career. And that's part of what uh, Cardi B was saying, that she had to go through all, she felt helpless. What could she do? These people are out there making money, posing post after post after post. I myself had heard these things. And here's what I feel about that. When you hear gossip or a rumor, you're inclined to either believe it or not believe it based on what you already think. So if you hear about somebody you don't like and you hear like, mm, of course, I knew it. I knew they were scum, you know. So if you if you <laughs> that's that's how it works. But the more dangerous thing is how we not only get information and retain it and believe it, because we all know there are plenty of superstars. Michael Jackson is just one example who had people say things about him, try and do these things. It wasn't until after he died, the kid admitted, yeah, my dad put me all up to it. But it doesn't matter. Michael went to his grave, okay, with these people still believing what they did about this case that was completely false. Now, the reason why I do not think it will change enough for it to stop is two things. One, we're in the age of lying. 
dude. This is it. Where everybody lies. Politicians lie. The president, the president of the United States, they used to come up with creative ways of saying a falsehood of this, so that they they couldn't find enough ways to say he was lying when he would lie. So that's one. You, you know, we're we're in a different age. Two. Remember Princess Diana? Okay. How come there were no paparazzi laws enacted after these paparazzi chased her, you know, uh, arguably to her death? Okay, nothing happened. Paparazzi are still a problem. Sean Penn was punching them out for decades. So to me, I don't feel that it will change. I feel that for a while people will be careful, but people will get emboldened now probably more than ever. In a disturbing video circulating on social media, you can hear basketball fans in China repeatedly shouting racist slurs, including the N-word, at American basketball player Sonny Weems. Telling the 35-year-old to... When you saw this, was this reinforcing something already? Well, it's not so much reinforcing uh, as... It was just a, a reminder of this, you know, we in this country have looked at, you know, the uh, Asian, you know, violence against Asian and black on Asian. Why is this happening? And then, of course, you know, the government passes a law immediately, which is a whole other conversation, how black people feel about that. But the tensions between blacks and Asians or specifically blacks and Chinese, that is not new. You know, you can't go to a black neighborhood in anywhere in this country and not find a Chinese food restaurant. Okay, so Asians have been embedded within black culture and and black communities forever. So why would there be any attention? You know, the the cleaners here in New York, I mean, you know, we all know the the, the Chinese businesses and we all know uh, the existence of, of Asians in our culture. But I can tell you, for me, I'm someone who grew up I, I, a little bit naive in many ways. I went to the high school of art and design. It was multi-ethnic. I had Chinese friends. I had Japanese friends. I had Puerto Rican friends. I had white friends. I, I, you know, so to me, that was just the way the world is. Then I went to Parsons school, had kids from all over the world. But the rest of the world, and in my contact with numerous uh, Chinese-owned groceries going into Chinatown, was bias was prejudice. It's something I'm aware of, that there are a lot of Chinese people who have issues. Now, for me, this story is just one every year. You put in Chinese, say, racial slurs or Chinese bias against black people. You put that in, you will see just about every year a story like this comes up. And this was the latest one where basketball fans in China were shouting all these racist slurs at uh, basketball player Sonny Weems after games on, on, on the 13th of January. They're literally shouting, get out of China, N-word. Oh, dude, you know, Jeremy Lin, who played for the New York Knicks, and I, I know you, you don't watch TV or follow sports as much, but, but I, dude, I was a Knicks season ticket holder. All right. I was really invested in the New York Knicks. And Jeremy Lin is from Taiwan. 
and he was having this incredible success. You could even argue that the streak that Jeremy Lin went on, which was a streak that actually became a documentary, that's how crucial and pivotal and significant that was because there had never been an Asian player, period, in a black-dominated NBA basketball league to take over and make black people look like scrubs for that one, two-week period. The dude was the biggest superstar in the NBA, and that streak not only took him as the king of New York, it made him like a global superstar. He's on their feet. Five, four, win for the win. Got it. And maybe a lot of newspapers won't report this, but people in the basketball community, I'm talking about the fans and sports talk radio and the blogs and everything else where the real conversations are being had. It was about how black people were like, yo, we can't have this Asian show us off like that in our home, in our basketball league. And the moment of evidence came when Jeremy Lin went toe to toe with the king of basketball, King LeBron James in Miami with the Miami Heat. We've got to put Linsanity on pause for just a little bit. This is a different this is a different level now. It's an elevated level. The scouting report is out on him. There's enough film to see some of his tendencies, what he can do and what he can't do well. But when you're going up against Dwayne Wade and LeBron James, there's an elevated level that he was not exposed to. He was exposed to it last night. And it was so bad, so pathetic, so awful that LeBron James just waved on Mario waved off Mario Thomas. He said, you know what? You go ahead and you do the job. Very interesting how these tensions manifest themselves using sports or basketball in particular to express these feelings through fandom. But there's a lot more going on. I remember growing up as a kid, man. And if you were black, name a black kid growing up that didn't watch Kung Fu movies, man. Uh, Again, that's... Wu-Tang Clan is evidence of the love for that Asian culture. You know you're preaching to the choir. So for me, I never understood it. But as I got older, I did understand it. I didn't understand where this Asian racism, where the Chinese don't like the black people. They have bought into the global narrative about people of color. There's a global narrative. It's not just Chinese that will call us the N-word. It's not just Germans. It's not just uh, uh, it's not just any one culture. You know, we can get I can go into any country anywhere. I can go into Canada right now and there's going to be Canadians that are going to have an issue with me. You know, so all that racism and, and what I feel happens here when they come here is I felt that they were adopting these American attitudes. But if it happens in China, if the Chinese in China, mainland China, because this is not the new they did the same thing to Stephen Curry. Okay, Uh, there again, there's so many articles that have talked about Chinese being racist against blacks. Do you remember when COVID hit and they were trying to eject all the Africans out of China because of COVID? The the problem I have is that it isn't acknowledged. People seem shocked. Oh, my God. The Chinese were hurling racial slurs like, yeah, this is not new. This is unfortunately something that's been going on for many years. 
I, I have a humorous story I tell about going into Chinatown, you know, when I was a teenager to buy fireworks. Because back in the day, I used to go down to Chinatown to buy fireworks. And I would go in, and I would go with a friend of mine. We'd go down into Chinatown, and then we'd stop in the Chinese deli. And I never forgot. We'd go into Chinese deli. We're trying to figure out what we want. The guy go, what you look for? What you look for? And, and it became a joke between us. Like, we would tease each other because this guy could barely speak English well. But that, it took us a minute to even understand what he was saying to us. But what he was basically saying to us is, why are you in here, black people? I don't trust you. He was saying, what are you looking for? Why is he acting like that with you, Mike? If you don't know him, just your skin color says it all. Yeah. Where is he getting that from? That global narrative. That's what I'm talking about. That- but it's not a global narrative, Mike, because he's not learning this in Africa. Dude. He's learning this shit in New York. Dude, he's learning this in America. Yeah. The most racist country on the planet. This is an American issue. Dude, I thought so, too. But it's not. If it's happening in China, on mainland China, it's not an American issue. But where did it happen first? If they come from China and it's possible. They, you know, maybe they're not as out, not maybe not everybody in China is obviously hates black people. But if they come here and they already had a bias and this is how it is in America, America, black people are the, you know, the ones in jail, the ones they're the enemy, then, hey, yeah, it's they don't have issue with everybody. They have had specifically issue with us. And for us, and I say us being me as a black person. I didn't understand it other than it's especially if you don't have any experience with me. Okay. Why are you judging me? Why are you judging me based on my, I walked into your store. Why are you watching me like a hawk? You know, I have the same experience in a Korean deli. That's what fascinates me because I don't think he said to himself, Oh, in China, this is how we feel. So I'm bringing that baggage and that racism over to America so I can teach Americans how Asians are racist to blacks. I'll learn, the Americans will learn that from me. I don't think that was the order of things. I think the order was different. I think it was an American influence on Asian people in America. Now, from a media standpoint, I think from a media standpoint, that's what I talk about the global. Oh, well, I'm just talking person to person. I think if you just grow up in the United States, you're going to always be wary of black people because of American white supremacy. There's a guy by the name of Scott Kurashige who wrote an article on Vox. Dude, excellent article, sort of on the myth of the model minority. And here's what he said, man. And I think that that what, as soon as I heard it, I actually understood better why that relationship might exist between Asians and blacks. And he says this, the model minority stereotype really isn't meant to define Asian Americans. Rather, it's meant to define African-Americans as deficient and inferior to white people by using Asian-Americans as a proxy or a pawn to serve that purpose. Uh, More evidence that the majority myth was not about the outcomes of a specific group, but a way to reemphasize the existing racial caste structure and absolve the government of removing barriers to success for black people. So put it, look at it this way. If white supremacy is the top of the American hierarchy, racial hierarchy, and black, according to white supremacy, is the lowest, then where do Asians fit in? 
at the lower, lower bottom or at the upper, upper top. And I think that that model minority was a way of telling black people in black society. It's like, hey, listen, you and I have had a war. We've had a war for 400 years. All right. Since 1619, we've been oppressing you. You should be more of a model citizen, the kind of way we want black people to be more white. But since you don't want to do that, we're going to pick the Asians and we're going to create a model minority myth. Like, look at the model citizens that they are. And they're also a lot lighter than you are black. So they're more approximate to us and they behave. They don't start wars. Their music isn't attacking cops. None of this rhetoric, this violent rhetoric, these protests, none of what you black people do, the Asians do. So we're going to pick them as models. And guess what that makes you if they're the model? That you're not the model. You're deficient. Well, I'm quite familiar with that passage. I'm quite familiar with his philosophy. And I'm quite familiar with a lot that's been written on this. And I agree with it a thousand percent. I think there, there are so many things that are used as tools of repression against black people in this country. Everything from media to movies to books to education. So, yes, I'm on board with that. But I do think that this narrative that is clearly, uh, uh, you know, America's drenched in it. Okay, but it is spread out over the world. Okay, because I have not gotten only bias from Chinese people. I've gotten bias from uh, Arab people, Asian people. I mean, I've gotten bias from foreigners who come to this country and they are against black people because like, well, that's what, you know, that's what it is. And and I'm sure I've told you some stories about that. But I I do want to say that, you know, for me, like I said, growing up, high school, college, I still have friends now that that have nothing to do with this whole narrative of black people. So I don't buy it as just, you know, everybody. But I be, I just like anything else, there are people who completely buy into it. And there's enough of them. So if you're a black person, you know there are a lot of Asian people, a lot of Chinese people specifically, who do not uh, respect you. Now, those aren't the people, obviously, that are my friends. And those aren't the people I... I, I, I you know, associate with, you know, but I've, I faced that bias a number of times uh, throughout my life. So I understand, I don't condone violence against anybody, but I understand where it's coming from because of the history. And it's a, it's a, it's a mix from their perspective of like, listen, we were programmed like everybody else was against blacks. And, and, and the only saving grace about this, Mike, is that there are moments of actual unity as well. So for example, black and Asian activists led the third world liberation front movement to establish race and ethnic studies in college and university curriculums in California. And recently uh, in New York city, black people protested and walked uh, for Asian lives. We are on the street. I am optimistic uh, that um, Asians, Chinese, and Blacks will get along. I mean, Chinese have put a lot of money into Africa. They've invested quite a bit. So they they are really going to be part of the African economy. And I think that China is also a major player in, in films and filmmaking. And, 
you know, I think what will change minds, just like what changed them to the negative will be the same things that change it to the positive. So I, I will always come back to uh, media, storytelling, journalism, having conversations like what we had for people to have a different perspective. I think let's just say that the world will be better for all of us if we're working together. You know, Mike, it's interesting. I think that we are going to see moving forward a lot more collaborations between cultures and storytelling, especially in Hollywood with African-Americans, with blacks and Asians. So for example, it's already kind of happening. We've seen how Eddie Huang sort of produced that, that show on Netflix called Boogie. No one believes in an Asian basketball player. Have mercy on my soul. It's a joke in this country. We can cook, clean, count real good, but anything else, we pick glass. Cause I got it on me. But if you stick to our plans and we beat Monk, we'll get our shot at the NBA. Look. And I think this is just gonna kinda continue on happening over and over again. And it's gonna be a beautiful thing, in my opinion. That's my optimism. And that's it for this episode of Brown and Black. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. This episode was edited by Joshua Torado. You can follow our comments and opinions on Brown Black Podcasts on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you on the next episode of Brown and Black.